Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Abraham Lincoln called the U.S. form of freedom the last best hope on earth. Throughout our history, most Americans believed that. So did countless people from other countries who left their homes behind to come here in pursuit of the American dream, including my own grandmother, who immigrated from Italy in 1910 as a 16-year-old to help free her family from bone-crunching poverty. But now things have changed. My guest today is Tim Gagline who has written a new book warning about how our educational system has corroded the belief of the young in the exceptional nature of the American Republic and our capacity to continually improve society as we aim toward a more perfect union, which is, by the way, the title of Gagline's book. Tim Gagline was special assistant to U.S. President George W. Bush and deputy director of the White House Office of Public Liaison from 2001 to 2008. In January 2009, Gagline became the Vice President of External and Government Relations for Focus on the Family. Gagline is a prolific public speaker and the author of many commentaries as well as three books. His first book was Man in the Middle, an inside account of faith and politics in the George W. Bush era, published in 2011. His second co-authored book was American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. And now he has just published Toward a More Perfect Union, The Moral and Cultural Case for Teaching the Great American Story. Tim, welcome to Humanize. Wesley, it's great to be with you. It's a genuine honor. I have read you uh, and followed uh, you and your great work for many years. And it's uh, I love our friendship and it's an honor to be here. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. You know, you spent your entire career in public service and public advocacy. What got you interested in those realms? You know, I was growing up in what I call the center of the universe, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it's the reason I'll never be a a great novelist, because I grew up in a happy home and in a a happy community. Uh, And uh, when I was a young boy, I was very interested uh, in what I would call an overlay um, of, uh, of public policy, of politics, and the press. And I knew from a very young age that I loved this, uh, this combination. And uh, I began doing radio and television when I was a very young boy uh, in my hometown with the CBS affiliate and later with Westinghouse Broadcasting. Uh, and from there, really, uh, Wesley, became a fascination 
uh, with words and journalism. And the man I consider to be the greatest uh, journalist uh, ever, uh, the, the greatest uh, pure uh, reporter and correspondent of World War II was Ernie Pyle. He was oh, actually, yes. yes, from my home state, from Little Dana, Indiana. I think by now I have uh, read almost every word that he has written. Uh, and I loved uh, everything about uh, his background. So all to say, I ended up by complete coincidence going to the Ernie Pyle School of Journalism at Indiana University in Bloomington. And when I was a junior, and I, I mean almost out of left field, uh, because after all, it was Indiana University, uh, I, uh, I received uh, a letter. And the letter was asking me to apply for an internship in the United States Senate for then Senator Dan Quayle, who was one of the youngest senators. Uh, and uh, I had campaigned for Dan Quayle. And so I was very familiar with his work in the House, thrilled that he was in the Senate. Uh, then and now, I was a Christian and a conservative. Uh, and I applied for and was chosen and came to Washington as an intern that particular summer. Uh, and I was fascinated uh, by uh, meeting so many of the people in my own generation from other parts of the country. Uh, it, I remember having dinner, Wesley, with a woman who told me about something called the Mississippi Delta. I had never heard of the Mississippi Delta. Uh, so all, all to say it was a, a, a remarkable summer. I came back to Washington the next summer as an intern uh, for NBC News, Roger Mudd, uh, one of my great friends and mentors, uh, and in the House of Representatives for Dan Coates. And uh, I'll say this very briefly, as you snap your fingers, Providence cleared his throat. Two years later, Dan Quayle becomes the Vice President of the United States. Dan Coates becomes the new U.S. Senator from Indiana. I was a producer at the NBC affiliate in my hometown. And the next thing I knew, I was a Deputy Press Secretary for Dan Coates in the Senate. And that was 30 plus years ago. Uh, I don't know where it's all gone. It's interesting. You know, I live now near Washington, D.C., too. And, you know, we talk about the swamp, but this place gets into your bloodstream. And that sounds yes. like it got into your bloodstream because well, you didn't go back home to Indiana. My friend, I'll tell you, and this is just the case. Um, uh, I uh, had no intention, even for three seconds, to spend any length of time in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, I came to work for Dan Coates. Uh, then and now uh, a great friend, uh, you know, a remarkable person. Uh, and, you know, two years became four years, four years became, and then you go on and on. But, but the other thing, and I must say this, I think this is so important in light uh, of, of uh, the book that I've just written. You know, um, I was very fortunate to have a remarkable mother and father and remarkable grandparents. Uh, they invested a lot of time in me. Uh, and they encouraged me from a very young age to read. And uh, they taught me the importance of culture, of history, you know, of being interested in everything from classical music to Mount Vernon, you know, uh, to uh, then and now I'm, I'm a Lincoln man, you know, uh, so I could go on and on. So, uh, you know, I, I must say in many ways, even though this book uh, you know, is about a golden narrative uh, of, of this remarkable country, uh, you know, in, much of it is personal. And, uh, and it's, it, it is born of some of the things that you and I are discussing uh, today. 
Uh, you you worked for George W. Bush uh, in the uh, West Wing of the White House, as I recall, the executive office building, because I'd visit you from time to time. What was that like? I don't you don't have to go through the whole eight years, but being in that that level of of influence and power and a desire for service. You know, I was uh, uh, at working at the White House for about seven and a half years. And by any objective measure, you know, Wesley, seven and a half years at the White House and 10 years in the U.S. Senate, uh, you know, you add all that, that's about five million years in dog years. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the typical tenure is what, something like 18 months because, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the days are long and it's, uh, it's kind of that the inbox is never empty. But I, I, I would, you know, I, I had high highs, I had low lows, I had much success, all by God's grace, I had many failures, all because of me, myself, and I, no excuses. I, I want to be very candid, I would do it all again. Uh, I loved my time uh, working in the Senate, I loved my time working in the White House. George W. Bush is a truly extraordinary person, just like Dan Coates. I mean, you know, uh, if you add all these 30 plus years together, uh, I've worked, you know, for Dan Coates, for George W. Bush, for Jim Daly, the president of Focus on the Family. And again, I say this with genuine humility, there are extraordinary people in the world, you know, uh, very good people. Uh, and, uh, and so I consider myself, uh, you know, very blessed to have worked with people of this caliber. Working at the White House, uh, by any, again, measure, is a, is a remarkable experience. Uh, and if you love culture, if you love history, the idea of the presidency, public policy, the overlay in our uh, constitutional republic, it was, uh, it was a remarkable ride. You're now with Focus on the Family. Just for the few people who may not know about that organization, give a brief overview of its purpose and what you do for them. Focus on the Family was founded uh, almost 50 years ago. It preoccupies itself as a ministry with family, marriage, parenting, with uh, human life, with religious liberty. Uh, I have about 700 colleagues. We have uh, both a domestic and a global uh, portion of focus on the family. And I, I, I say this uh, very boldly, if I may, but focus on the family's mission, uh, family, marriage, parenting, the pillars of focus on the family. I, I just think they are more important now uh, than the day that focus on the family began. Uh, we, we, we restore marriage. We preserve life. Uh, we care very deeply about religious liberty and the rights of conscience. Uh, we work uh, with the most difficult marriages. We work with the most difficult family brokenness and fracture. We work with women in crisis. We work with families in crisis. Uh, we have a very uh, well-known uh, daily faith-based broadcast, which is the largest uh, by audience uh, in the United States. But I'll tell you, even though that is our, our kind of best known, you know, front front page narrative, uh, you know, it's really uh, a dynamic uh, ministry. And I, and I must say the influence on the rising generation of young Americans through things like Adventures and Odyssey and so many other things, I mean, it really is, uh, you know, has a divine touch. And uh, it's, uh, it's an honor of a professional lifetime to uh, work for and be associated with this rather dynamic ministry. 
Your most recent book, again, is Toward a More Perfect Union, The Moral and Cultural Case for Teaching the Great American Story. I've authored books, too, and I know what kind of an effort it takes. I also know that you are, you know, working full-time with Focus beyond full-time. I mean, it's more than just a a 40-hour-a-week job. Why did you think it was so important to take the kind of time and effort it, it, it requires to write a book in addition to the other work you were doing? You know, uh, I had two significant meetings when I was working at the White House that quite literally changed my life. Uh, and, and, and these meetings uh, were with, uh, with, with two people who were genuine uh, heroes of mine before I ever met them. Uh, one was the, uh, the uh, his British historian, Paul Johnson, who just died, uh, people may or may not know, just in the last few weeks, remarkably uh, prolific. Uh, and although British, uh, you know, a great lover and, and a great understander of America, much like, uh, like Tocqueville. Uh, Paul Johnson was uh, a remarkable person. And, and the second person I met was David McCullough. Uh, another great American historian uh, who has died. But uh, as with Paul Johnson, uh, you know, have, I have read uh, almost all, if not all, of, of, uh, of, of what he wrote. And uh, in my conversation with David McCullough, he told me, Wesley, that he was uh, having insomnia. And I thought, this is very, very curious. Why is he sharing this? He said, I'm having insomnia. And, his, and I put this in the book, by the way, and I quote his doctor who said, yes, uh, this great American historian suffered from insomnia because he was so deeply concerned and rattled by the fact that the rising generation of young Americans did not know American history. They didn't know American culture. And by the way, not broadly speaking, I'm th- talking about the most basic building blocks. Um, and he really, David McCullough and Paul Johnson as well, by the way, I mean, equally with both men, uh, if, if they were in our great conversation today, and I'm really not being presumptuous and you were to ask them, they would tell you that this is one of their primary concerns, uh, uh, you know, in this generation in the twenty first uh, in the twenty first century, this kind of cultural and historic and in the American context constitutional illiteracy uh, that is really of epidemic uh, proportions. And as you know, Wesley, in the fr- first part of the book. I actually uh, don't, uh, I don't just express opinions. I, I delve deeply into the research and I found uh, that, uh, that when uh, public school students uh, who were given the, the basic test uh, that when a, when a legal immigrant wants to become a citizen, they have to still take a test. And the results uh, by American uh, public school students to these questions, honestly, is absolutely stunning. Uh, one in four uh, could name George Washington as the first president of the United States, but only one in four. That to me is unbelievable. Uh, only 10% knew that there are nine justices on the Supreme Court. And, you know, I mean, th- these are sobering statistics. Less than 30% knew that the president of the United States heads the executive branch. And the thing, Wesley, is that every- So, excuse me for interrupting, but you're saying they don't even understand the basic 
uh, structure of the American government. Precisely. And the numbers that I'm sharing with you and with, uh, with our listeners today uh, are from 2009. And so what I did is I looked at another similar, uh, similarly structured survey uh, from 2018. This one was done by the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. And this one was a survey of people in all 50 states. And what they found is that only 53% were able to earn a passing grade in U.S. history. And by the way, I, I will not go again through the, through the empirical data sets and numbers, but uh, it is really stunning uh, what, uh, what, what, what people who are otherwise uh, <laughs> remarkably bright don't know. And I say this because, and I'm going back to McCullough and to Johnson for a moment, the question that emerged in my mind, and I want to be very specific in answering your question, why write this book? The, 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 the thing that became very clear to me is that it was a willful uh, propagandization. It was a willful misinformation. Uh, there were people, substantial people of standing, who had worked over a number of years fairly systematically to essentially erase America's story, to erase our memory, to erase the, uh, the American narrative, and essentially to replace it with something else. Uh, and if people say, well, that sounds rather Orwellian, I think actually that's a very good description um, of what I was able to find. And, and, and uh, the, the more that I read these statistics, uh, the more uh, empirical data sets that you look at, Wesley, you realize that this is a recurring, reliable pattern. And of course, it prompts the question, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, you know, I... Um one of the statistics that you cite that really shocked me was that only 3% could pass a U.S. citizenship test. That's correct. Uh, and, you know, uh, listening to you, I could hear your critics saying, oh, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. But if it's just a conspiracy theory, then somehow uh, they would have to explain why these uh, statistics exist. Because I can tell you, when I was in uh, grade school and high school, we had a firm, firm foundation in, in civics, in American history. You know, everybody knew who George Washington was, etc. So uh, I don't know what other explanation there might be. Yeah, the, the answer is there isn't one. Uh, you know, our second uh, president, John Adams, who, by the way, is one of my favorites and who David McCullough wrote a very important book about. Uh, in fact, I think it's the best uh, uh, contemporary biography of, J of John Adams. Uh, and, and Adams famously said, Wesley, that facts are stubborn things. <laughs> you oh, know? I didn't know uh, he was the one who yes, coined uh, that term. Echoing several years later, another senator who I knew uh, during my time with Dan Coates, Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, of New York, he famously said that everyone is entitled to his own opinions, but not everyone's entitled to his own facts. Uh, and I think that what we can say, uh, and, I, and, and as I do say in Toward a More Perfect Union, is we have reliable data sets that tell us uh, that we uh, are living in the midst of historic uh, levels of constitutional, historic, and cultural illiteracy. And I think it is fair, and I want to go back to, to the second point that you raised. Uh, critics may say, now wait a minute. 
you know, uh, what, if you disaggregate this data, what does it actually mean? And, and so taking, you know, potential critics at their best sense, uh, I'm willing to acknowledge that. I, I do believe there are other very important factors, and I say so in the book. I think uh, this has been caused by a breakdown in history and civic education. Uh, uh, I think it's been uh, caused by incivility. I think it's been uh, caused by bad leaders, cultural decay, cancel culture. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to factor uh, all of those, uh, you know, uh, data points uh, into the reason why. Uh, I, I, I quote in this book uh, uh, former President Eisenhower. I went back and read his 1953 inaugural address. It's, it's quite an extraordinary speech, and I think very underrated. And he says in this speech, I'd like to quote just one sentence from it. He says, a people that values its privileges above its principles soon loses both. And, uh, you know, this was 1953. So I think, I think the bottom line, Wesley, in answer to, to all three of the points that you made, is that I think we have forgotten our principles uh, while exalting our privileges. That, that, that's how I would put it. And, uh, and you know, I, with and human I exceptionalism, I, sorry? yeah, human exceptionalism is about both rights and responsibilities. Yes. And I think that goes right along with what you are describing here. Yes. And I, and I, and I, and I would, the answer is yes. And I would even add a coda. I would say that without principles to serve uh, as a foundation, right, that we will eventually lose our privileges. Uh, I think that's what we're seeing playing out in our culture every single day. And it was the primary catalyst for my writing uh, this book. You write, quote, this lack of education or misinformation has placed our nation in great peril. And we are seeing consequences unfold daily in our corporate boardrooms, hall of power and streets. Give me one or two examples of what you're describing. I'd love to. You know, uh, I have a very dear friend who I uh, talk about in the book, uh, who was a native Californian, native of the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, uh, as a young boy, absolutely loved history uh, and memorized all the presidents before he was 10 years old, uh, really fell in love not only with the American story, but within the history of California. Uh, you know, uh, California uh, is so great that if it didn't exist, we'd have to create it. I mean, it's a remarkable place. Uh, of all the places on planet Earth, I mean, I, I have a love affair with America, but of all the places on the Earth, California is unbelievably special. Uh, and one of the primary uh, founders of that great state is Father Sarah. I mean, you can go up and down California and you look at all the missions, okay? Now, here's the thing. If you are a contemporary public school student, and I might say a contemporary private school student in, in many instances, Father Sarah has been canceled. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can be a native Californian and know nothing about this by, again, objective historical measures, extraordinary person. And it's not you just know, this Father is Sarah, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I want to, we should say this. Uh, in, in, I mean, objectively canceled George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill. I was speaking to a group. I should have put this in the book. I was speaking to a group, uh, and after I finished, these are all these were graduate students, Wesley. 
after I finished, I had uh, a number of young people come up to me afterward, after the Q&A, and they said, we are fascinated by this man, uh, Winston Churchill, who you mentioned, uh, you know, in your remarks. Uh, we have never heard of, you know, Winston Churchill, you know. Uh, He's a graduate student? Yes. And, and they were stunned that somehow, and I'm paraphrasing here, if I may, but they were stunned, essentially, that they had been robbed of their own legacy. <laughs> you know, I mean, th this we are very deep uh, into wokeism, cancel culture, and erasure. Uh, and when you start erasing people like Father Sarah and Abraham Lincoln uh, and having serious discussions about, uh, you know, the overtaking uh, of the ancestral uh, historic homes of some of our founders, you know, and erasing who they are. Um, you know, I think that the ultimate goal of cancel culture uh, and items such as the 1619 Project, which I deal with at length in my book, I think it is to destroy America's foundations, uh, Wesley, through a combination of both ignorance and disinformation and to essentially create an entirely different nation. Uh, you know, I grew up in California, and uh, we certainly learned about Father Sarah, uh, the missions. In fact, my grandmother, who I referenced in the introduction, is buried at the San Gabriel Mission. Wow. And uh, uh, El Camino Real, the King's Road. Um, but we weren't told at that time about the negative side of the Spanish conquest, if you will. Yes. And I can hear your critics now, critics now saying, well, you just want to cover up America's wrongs. What do you, how do you respond to that? I'm raising my right hand, even though your listeners uh, cannot see me. But I promise <laughs> you, categorically, as our British friends say, A to Z, I deal with this at length in the book. Uh, I did not in any manner set out to write a book that in any manner covers up or counter erasures or counter spins or creates a new set of talking points. As you know, Wesley, uh, in reading the book, I deal at length uh, with, the, uh, with the dark chapters of American history. Uh, and I think we have to all be comfortable uh, that in the preamble to the Constitution, which is, of course, the basis for the title of my book, Toward a More Perfect Union, that is an ipso facto, uh, you know, confession that no nation is perfect. Uh, no nation uh, should ever seek to be a utopia, because as we were warned by the great uh, Catholic writer, utopias don't exist. Uh, they, are, they're, they're very dangerous, in my view, to hold up uh, as the mantra, because what you do is you begin systematically erasing uh, the, the immutability of, of human nature. Uh, we are flawed. We are fallen, right? I mean, we have to be very comfortable that just as every individual is flawed and fallen, so are all nations, and especially, if I may say, great nations like the United States. And at length, throughout this book, I, I am comfortable with and deal with head on uh, the flaws of American uh, history. Of course I do. I think any other, any other kind of book would frankly be, uh, you know, dishonest. And this is what I must say, this is why I deal at length in this book 
with just two, and I could deal with many others, and so could you, two of the, of the deeply flawed uh, uh, projects in this regard. The first one uh, is the 1619 project. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a, uh, a truly uh, a historic abomination. Uh, and, uh, and I actually quote from Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the author of the 1619 Project, and I'm happy to quote her on this, on this uh, conversation where she says, and I'm quoting her, the fight over the 1619 Project is not about history, it is about memory. That to me is a remarkable, remarkable statement. And then of course, as you know, I spent an entire chapter on Howard Zinn. Uh, Howard Zinn, I believe we are, every one of us, duty-bound to know who this man was. Neo- yeah, I was going to ask yes. you, who was Howard Zinn? So I'll let you do that now. Yes, he was a neo-Marxist, an incredibly influential academic and writer. He wrote uh, the most uh, widely read and used textbooks uh, in air quotation marks in the teaching of American history, except for the fact that Howard Zinn was the architect of much of this the uh, disinformation that we are uh, discussing today. Um, his goal, and this is, this is expressly the case, his goal was not to teach facts, but opinions, his opinions. He uh, says that. He says that in his writing? He does. And he said that he wanted to transform American history. And his goal, as you will, uh, and, and everybody else knows, uh, was to denounce Western civilization and to convince uh, the readers, the students, to reject Western civilization because it was marred by what he called, and I'm eager to share this if I may, Wesley, these are Howard Zinn's words. He describes Western civilization as actually defined by the religion of popes, the government of kings, the frenzy of money. I mean, this this is the man who was writing the principal uh, history texts used by millions and millions of school students starting at very young ages. Uh, and I could, I could use a thousand examples just in our time together. One of the things that I think is particularly disturbing, and by the way, I think it should be equally deeply disturbing to our many friends on the progressive light, uh, right as to our uh, left, as to our friends on the on the conservative right. Uh, he, he says that America became involved in World War II to protect, and I'm quoting him again, the imperial interests of the United States. And, and his version of history, uh, Wesley, we can categorically say is now the dominant one taught in our education system. So that that means that they have to have uh, not be teaching about isolationism and that whole debate in the 30s and in which we actually did not jump to go into war and we only entered the war after Pearl Harbor. Absolutely right. Uh, And in fact, uh, I I am I am so pleased to tell you uh, and to share with your uh, with your audience the name of Mary Graber, uh, Dr. Mary Graber has done all of us an incredible service from a scholarly, academic, pinpoint accurate uh, uh, standpoint. She has delved into the entire Howard Zinn legacy. And she found, and I'm quoting her, that Zinn's propaganda 
has been spectacularly effective. She writes that his dishonest American history is not the only factor uh, in America's turn away from our heritage of freedom towards communist fantasies, but, and I'm quoting her still, he has been instrumental in this destructive transformation. I think that that is exactly it. And when did his um, textbooks become influential, approximately? My friend, uh, he was uh, busy as a beaver uh, in the uh, in the in the 60s and 70s, but of course, and, and 80s, and of course, all of this spilled over for several years. You know, afterward, uh, he was a very substantial figure uh, at the universities where he taught. He was an activist, a left wing activist. Uh, and, you know, my, my, my strongly held view, and I want to go back to Paul Johnson, if I may for a minute, and to David McCullough, because I, I think I'm, again, honor bound to say this. It really is okay uh, if a historian has a point of view. Uh, that is, I think, extremely important. Uh, and I think it's equally important that that historian state very clearly for every single reader what his view is. You know that in my book, I have all kinds of great things to say about another man of the left, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. I spent a very long afternoon with him in New York City uh, in the early 2000s, and I write at length not just about uh, some of his history, but many of the things that he was warning about, uh, you know, as a, as a liberal Democrat. Uh, and uh, just for people who may not yes. recall, uh, Schlesinger was an historian and very close to JFK. Yes, he was. And uh, his book, his very big book, uh, The Age of Jackson, is one that influenced me uh, deeply uh, as, a, uh, as a young man when I first read it. Uh, now, uh, Arthur Schlesinger uh, overwhelmingly uh, had no truck with American conservatives. Uh, he was often the bane of the existence of the conservative debating class, beginning with people like Bill Buckley and others, uh, often you know, gave as good as he got, etc. But uh, everybody knew, everyone knew, that even though he had a strong point of view, uh, you know, his scholarship was, 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 was worth absorbing, along with other scholars who, on uh, looking at the same you know, sets of, uh, of history may come up with different conclusions. That really is okay. I think that that's actually quite important. But you have to say it. You have to be clear about that. Uh, and I think that Howard Zinn was not clear about that. I think that the 1619 Project uh, got way ahead of itself. And of course, as with Howard Zinn, uh, is having a very, in my view, negative impact on the rising generation of young Americans, because what it does is it seeks, uh, as I quoted a moment ago, uh, to focus on American memory and very often e e erase it and, uh, and, to, and to redirect it. And this, this is not healthy when it comes to understanding and absorbing our culture and history. That's actually very Orwellian because in 1984, Orwell specifically state that the uh, states in, in the book, which is fiction, but very prophetic, that the perp the state had erased all memory, had erased all history yes. and rewritten it and then would continually rewrite it so that people had no foundation for their society. I, I could not agree more. In fact, it's funny that you quote Orwell uh, because uh, in, in his own time, of course, he was a man uh, of the reliable left. 
Uh, you bet. Uh, you know, uh, the, he, but he had great admirers uh, and he admired many people on the other side. You know, uh, Orwell was uh, taken with the Catholic conservative uh, British writer, Evelyn Law. Uh, you know, Chesterton, uh, you know, very often found very important things to say, uh, you know, as a, as a Catholic and a conservative, uh, you know, of people like George Bernard Shaw. I mean, it really is okay to have remarkably different uh, ideological stances, uh, <clears throat> to write important things, but you have to say it. And I think that, that, that Orwell, is, in many ways, has, has become uh, remarkably prophetic to so much of what we are talking about today, because it seems to me that the largest historic question in this regard is, are we prepared to stand up uh, to this lack of teaching and propaganda because it's directly related to the preservation of America. I, I really believe that. And, and in a more, uh, toward a more perfect union in this book, that, that is what I point toward. That, that's, that's where I think we're going. Yeah, you, you used a word that I think is not quite strong enough. You called about flaws. I think there's some very deep sins uh, that need to be confessed, and there needs to be acknowledgement. Uh, for example, slavery, of course, is one of the great sins of yes. human history. I'm very comfortable with that language, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you write something that I really liked. You, you get into how Douglas, uh, Frederick Douglass, viewed Abraham Lincoln, Yes, of course, Abraham Lincoln, one of our great presidents, with uh, certainly uh, from today's perspective, would be deemed a racist because he didn't believe in the equality of all human beings, but who also grew in office and became a total advocate for eradicating slavery and, in fact, gave his life doing that. And, and, here's some, and then Douglas was asked to uh, describe his view of Lincoln. And you give a long quote that I won't quote, but I want to quote Tim Gagline. Mm -hmm. And you say, quote, Douglas's words give us razor sharp image of Lincoln as a flawed but determined figure. Yes. But he gives us even more. He also gives us a method for viewing history, a way to exist in a world where nothing and no one is perfect and where even those who we, who we respect will frustrate and disappoint us. Yes. I think that's a, a, a an important point. I, I, I see some of the things you're talking about, and because we are not perfect, there seem to be millions of young people who say, well, just reject the whole thing. It's almost like they're um, uh, forlorn lovers who've been jilted. And, and Frederick Douglass, who was a slave at one point in his life, escaped and so forth, was able to actually enunciate how we look at historical figures in a way that you just described quite beautifully, I think. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. I am a gigantic fan of Frederick Douglass. And I think that Frederick Douglass uh, saw far beyond his age. Uh, in, in that, he, he had common genius, I think, with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I, I think that these are transcendent figures uh, you know, who, who uh, use rhetoric and use language as a way of, of articulating a future that they envision. Uh, they, you know, Lincoln uh, uh, is, is one of those people. Douglas is another. Uh, Dr. Martin King is another. Uh, I mentioned Churchill earlier. In, in many ways, I think Ronald Reagan. 
uh, I mean, these are these are statesmen of a of a very fine order. Uh, you know, George Washington, this remarkable general, this remarkable statesman. Uh, Thomas Flexner called him the indispensable man, and I think that that's right. And I'm also glad that you you uh, to go back to your first comment, if I may, Wesley. Uh, I believe uh, slavery then and now is evil, and I think it is a sin. Period. Uh, it's inexplicable. Uh, it's irrational. And I think that uh, that we have to be comfortable with the fact that Abraham Lincoln was not born an abolitionist, and he spent much of his young life uh, as a non-abolitionist. But of course, uh, he saw where it was all going. And even though he was not the first Republican presidential nominee, he was the first successful one. Uh, and, you know, Wiggery, uh, at where he was, uh, was coming to a close. And I think in no small measure because of some of the things that we're talking about today. And, uh, and it's, really, it's really okay, in my opinion, to be able to honestly look at Lincoln, to not uh, draw apart at all from his genius, but to be able to say, as with other human beings, uh, in real time, what could have he thought or done better? I mean, I think that that's true of most people. But when it comes to our leading statesmen, uh, to, to erase them, to cancel them, uh, you know, to, to, to with a straight face propose that we take their name off of a school. I mean, uh, this, is, this is very deep water. And, and I think that, uh, that if we allow this to go forward, uh, I think we will have uh, remarkable regrets uh, in the decades ahead. You wrote that uh, the consequences of the failures that you've been describing here uh, can be seen in the summer of 2020. What did you mean by that? You know, uh, being a, a, a non-native Washingtonian uh, and uh, working in Washington uh, downtown for so often, I had not actually gone to Lafayette Square uh, for many months. That's unusual because I'm, I'm in the city uh, almost every day. And I remember going down after the, 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 the summer riots. And uh, I, uh, I, I, I think I cried a river of tears. Uh, yeah, Lafayette Park, just for listeners who may not know, is right adjacent to the White House. Indeed. And uh, uh, that four of the greatest generals born on foreign soil, but for their help, uh, we would have lost the American Revolution. Uh, they they are the four uh, they are the four statues uh, in the corner of this uh, vest pocket city park, and the riots downtown in Lafayette Square were so enormous uh, that those uh, incredible pieces of of statuary monumentality uh, had to be wrapped in several layers of uh, of wire to keep them from being vandalized and damaged. Um, the entire Lafayette uh, Park, uh, you know, was closed uh, eventually uh, to the public uh, because uh, the riots uh, became uh, so enormous. Uh, rocks and bricks and so forth have been thrown uh, into the windows of the Department of Veterans Affairs, where Lincoln's uh, great uh, quote is uh, on a plaque there, uh, uh, you know, in our uh, national uh, duty uh, to help the, the, the widows. Uh, who had who had uh, you know lost their uh, husbands uh, in our in our uh, ferocious uh, civil war? Uh, are the Church of the Presidents uh, contiguous to Lafayette Square vandalized? Uh, one of uh, set on fire. Yes, indeed. Uh, one one of uh, one of the greatest 
uh, landmarks and hotels in the United States is the Hay Adams Hotel uh, that is also across from the park. It has a very important history, uh, you know, to, to, the, to the American presidency and to the story of freedom. Uh, vandalized. So I could go on. I get on. what you're saying then is that the 2020 riots, uh, which were sparked by the murder of an African American by a police officer, um, actually were bigger than that. And it sounds like you're saying that this was an attack on America itself. You know, when you go into an era, uh, an area like this, the evocation of history is very strong, isn't it? Uh, you know, you think of the late 1960s when Bob and Ethel Kennedy you know, uh, took uh, that walk through Washington, D.C., which had uh, parts of the city had been burned to the ground, you know. Uh, and because you, of the Martin Luther King assassination. Indeed. And you, and you stand in these historic cityscapes and you realize that the price of freedom is so enormous that we ought to be very careful about vandalizing and pulling it down. Uh, that, yeah. that, that, that iconoclasm is real. And it is when rage uh, overtakes uh, the bounds, uh, you know, of how you want to think about a country, a culture, and its civilization. And I found uh, some of this metaphoric for what we are uh, talking about today. So, so it was the lack of true understanding of American history that helped fuel the rage that led to the, uh, the anger and riots you're, you're describing. I, I, I do believe that, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, Dr. King was, was absolutely correct. It is about the arc of history, but the arc of justice. Yes, of course it is. Uh, and we ought to be very pinpoint, uh, crystalline about that. But we ought not at the same time be bringing down the entire rightful historic monumentality uh, and way that we remember other great figures uh, of American history. Uh, this, is, th th this is the kind of bargain we should not put ourselves in as a great nation. I think the, the question then has to be asked, can we say the same kind of ignorance helped lead to the riot at the Capitol on 1621? You know, uh, I was on Capitol Hill that day uh, from the east side, not the west side. I, I watched this. And, and again, uh, it, it, it takes a person's breath away uh, to, to think about and to actually witness, uh, you know, what can happen when these bounds uh, have been breached. And I think uh, it is that kind of uh, 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 anger uh, and kind of pulsating push that we uh, that we ultimately historically have to say can result in the in, in the loss of freedom. You know, as Reagan famously said in that great speech that I quote in the book, freedom is a very fragile thing, you know. Uh, that line between civilization and barbarism is as thin as thin ice. You know, the, 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 the yes. power goes out uh, in a great city, uh, and three seconds later, people are smashing windows. You know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very thin line. It's a bright line. Uh, and uh, in, in, the, in the idea of freedom and liberty, the other side of it is virtue. And this kind of moral excellence is what guarantees us and gives us freedom in the long run. We're almost out of time, but I did want to run a pet theory of mine by you because of what you've written. Uh, I have been uh, kind of focusing on how the French Revolution is attacking the American Revolution. In other words, those are two different events, even though they were close in time. 
with completely different principles and yes. completely different goals. The French Revolution was to utterly destroy all that came before it. It was to just not only destroy the royalty and the king, to destroy religion, to destroy the whole uh, establishment of civic government and start from year zero in a very utopian way. Versus the American Revolution, which it's kind of an oxymoron, but I always think of it as a conservative revolution, which was intent on improving what existed, not destroying everything. What do you think of my theory there? And that we are right now the latest um, front in that constant battle, which started with the French Revolution, went to the Bolshevik Revolution, the Cultural Revolution in China, and so forth, and now I it's on our that shores. that is spot on, and it's correct. And I'd like to make two comments. The first is uh, one of my uh, wonderful friends uh, and uh, a man who I think is a very underrated historian and a great philosopher was the late, great Russell Kirk. And Russell Kirk uh, wrote at length about the distinction between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And, uh, you know, he was making many of these important points at a time when in popular histories, the French and the American Revolution were conflated simply because the French uh, had been such a great ally of ours in the American Revolution. But Russell made it very clear, and Wesley, to your great point, that we confuse uh, the French Revolution uh, and the American Revolution at our own peril. And that, in fact, uh, perhaps the greatest of all Anglo-American uh, conservatives, Edmund Burke, wrote uh, you know, his, his uh, magnus opus uh, on the revolution in France. And he uh, warns in this extraordinary book, what will be the consequence for freedom if you pull down everything in defense of this kind of radical uh, rights of man? And so I, I, I think that, uh, uh, that, uh, that Burke, that Kirk, that Wesley Smith, I believe are, are absolutely correct. <laughs> And I wanted to say one other thing, if I may, related to that point in the book, which is it's so easy for us to say uh, we've never been this divided before, right? Well, that's not really correct. You know, uh, in the American Revolution, right, one third of all Americans were indifferent to who won. One third were for the British and a third for what we called the cause. They didn't refer to it as the American Revolution. It was called the cause. I mean, only one third and two thirds are indifferent or for the British. I call that major division. What about the Civil War? Uh, you know, we have <laughs> brothers and cousins shooting each other to death in peach orchards. You know, that's that's division. 750,000 people dead, uh, you know, later. Uh, a president murdered on the principle, you know, of, uh, of, of what is justice uh, and what is constitutional balance. So... Which gets us to the solutions yes. that you offer, and uh, so that we don't get to those places of division. Just uh, very quickly, what what do you think that should be done, and and do people care enough to make well, that happen? Well, to the last point, I believe very strongly people do care enough to make it happen. I'm an inveterate optimist, and I believe that the best days for our extraordinary country are ahead of us. And I'll tell you, I think we are living, and this is a a measurable, hopeful moment. I think, Wesley, we are living in the middle of a parental rebellion. And I think it's not just a parental rebellion. I think at one uh, stage, it's also a grand uh, parental rebellion. I think that parents, grandparents, etc., are waking up to the fact of the following. Who's on a school board? How do they get elected? Should I run? 
who decides the curriculum in our local school? Have I ever been to a school board meeting? Uh, do I know the superintendent? Do I know the principal? Do I know the teachers? By the way, who's teaching civics? Who's teaching history in our local school? Uh, you know, I think, Wesley, that we have to ask a very big question, and it's very basic. Here it is. What kind of a country do we want 50 years from now? I think that that's a pretty good question. I think it's a pretty good question to say, after this wonderful dialogue, what, what, what do we want? I think we want an informed citizenry equipped with the right facts. And I, it, it seems to me that if we can go tell a new generation, uh, and I think, by the way, that the battle for the soul of our nation begins in our homes. I do think that. Um, which will then hopefully transform our schools and restore the proper teaching of American history and civics. But I believe, as, as Chesterton said, you know, every neighborhood should have a banner. It's always about where we, it's always about home. It's about local. It's about where we're at. So family, uh, home, neighborhood, parish, church. I think that, 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 the, that the kind of things that we want begin locally and, and grow. It's not Washington uh, you know, top down. It's not Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Hollywood top down. No, I think it has to begin organically at the local level. That's where restoration begins. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And um, I wanted to ask you um, one final question, actually, sure. an ultimate question. This isn't just important mm -hmm. for the United States. It strikes me that without uh, the United States as the liberty, the light of liberty, that the entire concept of universal human rights is threatened throughout I the world. I could not agree more. Back to Paul Johnson, if I may, just for a moment. Paul said that the study of history is a powerful antidote to arrogance. I think that's exactly right. I think there, as he said, there are no inevitabilities in history. And I think uh, that the United States of America uh, has, and we are duty bound uh, to address this issue head on, to get it right at home and to be systematic and committed to this, and then to pay attention uh, you know, in, in the rest of the Western world, particularly, uh, to the exact same kind of trends that are happening. And by the way, they are happening in every other one uh, of, 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 of the Western nations. And I think that this era of moral relativism and this era of nihilism uh, uh, really echoes the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution of what you were talking about earlier. And I think that they are definitively uh, related. And I think that, uh, that uh, it's going to take uh, many decades, I think, uh, to, to address this head on because social and cultural change, as we know uh, from history, uh, you know, takes, takes a long time. Uh, Paul Johnson uh, said, and I think this is just so true, he said that, yeah, I just love this. He said that the creation of the United States of America is the greatest of all human adventures. And I think that's exactly right. This is a... And, and if we could just start teaching that absolutely. in the school again, schools, uh, things could, could uh, turn around in terms of how people participate in the society as opposed to try to either mm -hmm. run away from it I, or I destroy it. I could not it. agree more, and it's the basis of hope. And we have to remember, 
if I may, that the Constitution is the center of the project. Uh, you know, this generation has to read the Constitution. They have to understand the Constitution. This generation has to read the Declaration of Independence and understand it. Because what we're talking about here, Wesley, is the following. If we lose the Constitution, we will never get it back again. Uh, and and yes. I think in that sense, we have a, a moral duty to go tell this uh, next generation. And, and the entire uh, point of my book, Toward a More Perfect Union, is to actually make the moral and cultural case for the American story because the American story is worth defending. Well, this has been a very interesting, sometimes disturbing discussion. What next for Tim Gagline? Uh, I, uh, I, I am uh, working on another book, which I am uh, very excited about. Uh, I'm in the research uh, phase, and it will be uh, a book uh, uh, quite unlike this book, but not entirely unrelated. Uh, and I'm uh, enjoying uh, every minute of it. And uh, we'll, uh, uh, we will look forward uh, perhaps sometime to coming back and talking about that uh, book uh, when, it, uh, when it makes its appearance. Well, I look forward to that. Tim, thanks for being on Humanize. It's and we'll talk joy. to you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.